every single marketer and every single brand should be attempting to earn a disproportionate share of conversation. If you work for an organization where they say, bring us a chart that goes up and to the right, you have a challenge. Half the money I spend on advertising is wasted. The trouble is, I don't know which half. I am here to inspire you, to excite you, to motivate you, to transform you, to energize you. Hello, and welcome to Demand Gen Visionaries. This episode features an interview with Nikhil Behel, CMO of FICO, a leading analytics software company helping businesses in over 85 countries. Nikhil has over 25 years of technology, software, and e-commerce experience. Prior to FICO, he was COO of Mercantula and spent 12 years in a number of executive level positions at Hewlett Packard. Nikhil is best known for being part of the founding team that built HPShopping.com and turned it into one of the top five IR500 retailers in just seven years. On this episode, Nikhil uncovers the main ingredient for crafting the perfect customer testimonial, why the people you work with are the main driver for creativity, and his strategic tips for creating curated events that perform. But before we begin, here's a brief word from our sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by our friends at Qualified.com. If you are a B2B marketer who has always dreamed of knowing when a qualified prospect is on your site and being able to talk to them instantly, now you can. Learn more at Qualified.com. So please enjoy this interview between Nikhil Behel, CMO of FICO, and your host, Ian Faison. Welcome to Demand Gen Visionaries. I'm Ian Faison. CEO of Caspian Studios, and today we are joined by special guest, Nikhil, how are you? Thank you, Ian. I'm very well. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thanks for joining. This is going to be a really fun episode. We jumped out of our B2B tech airplane for a quick moment to talk to you, and this is this is going to be really fun. So excited to chat about your role at FICO and, and all the amazing stuff that you've been working on. So let's get started. What was your first role in marketing? You ask everybody that question on your uh, different podcasts, Ian. What led you to actually come up with that as the first question to kick this off? Yeah, well, first off, everybody loves an origin story. But I think it's important to know for our listeners that where somebody starts is not where they are. And so there's a lot of people, almost everybody has like a pretty non-traditional path to becoming a CMO or a VP of demand gen or, or whatever. And it's important to know that everybody gets started somewhere and that where that where that moment is, is, is an important moment in time. Yeah, so my first formal gig, if you will, was at Hill Packard Company in channel marketing and channel demand generation. I started that right after my undergraduate degree. But if you really want to go all the way back, it probably started when I was a kid and trying to figure out how to make a, a little bit of extra pocket money, if you will, and coming up with an offline version of what you would call either eBay or or Craigslist today. So there was a decent amount of offline demand gen generated with generating some extra pocket money. I love it. I feel like so many of us had whatever we were we were shilling to uh, <laughs> the local yes. other kids. <laughs> That's right. So tell us a little bit about what it means to be a CMO of FICO. Let me start off with just talking a little bit about what is FICO or who is FICO. I think most people have an idea of what FICO is, probably an incomplete sense of it. FICO is, as most people know, the FICO score, which is the industry standard for credit decisioning in the U.S. market or in the North America market. Apart from that, though, we also have a really robust and similarly sized software business. And it's an analytical software business that we predominantly sell into financial services companies for 
analytically driven applications around their customer journey. So let's get to our first segment, the trust tree. With the knowledge you've been given, you are now on the inside of what I like to call the circle of trust. What, I thought we were in the trust tree in the nest, are we not? This is where we go and feel honest and trusted, and you can share those deepest, darkest demand gen secrets. So let's dig into who your customers are. Who are the people that are buying your analytic and decisioning platform? On the software side, which is the question I think you're asking me, Ian, we sell into a large number of fintechs, up and coming financial services companies also end up using it. And they use our platform around their customer lifecycle, around their customer journey, all the way from how to attract a customer, acquire a customer, onboard a customer, how to cross-sell to a customer, how to upsell into a customer, how to manage the risk profile of that customer, and how to do it in a highly regulated environment. And so there are various personas or, or groups of folks in these financial services companies that would be our customers. So chief risk officers, chief fraud officers, chief marketing officers, different data scientists that might be responsible for one component or the other and so forth. And so depending on the use case or the problem set that that customer might have that they're trying to solve for, we would be selling into and or creating context, awareness, consideration, and helping them get through the buying cycle for either our platform and or one of our applications and solutions. And so it seems like since a few of those different positions, obviously all dealing with data, obviously Mm -hmm. all looking for that type of information, what does that kind of like buying committee end up looking like? Is it a different person that signs the dotted line, but all those people are stakeholders in the process? Yeah, that's a great question, Ian. And, you know, it's really evolved over a period of time. So in the old days, you probably had one person really making the buying decision. Those days have really gone. In the old days, if somebody was responsible for managing risk in an institution and really making sure that the the fraud was minimized, they weren't necessarily thinking about, hey, how do you do that in the context of optimizing the customer experience? Or how do you do that in the context of maximizing revenue and profitability? Today's world is very different. That customer experience is connected all the way through. The relationships are deeper, but also can be more transactional in in nature. And so the way in which financial companies, let's say banks, for example, need to approach this today is really much more in an integrated fashion. And Mm -hmm. what are they trying to do? They're trying to build an intelligent enterprise that delivers a hyper-personalized customer experience connected across that customer lifecycle and journey with products that they can take to market faster with a lower cost to serve and secure and regulated environment. And so in order to deliver something like that, they really have to work together to to do so. It could be the the business unit owner in partnership with their risk subject matter expert, in partnership with the data scientists that are enabling them to make the best decisions possible on a platform or a solution, and their IT counterparts who are enabling that solution and bringing it to bear so that they can be in market and deliver the customer experience they're looking to deliver in a construct that actually works for them. So most of the time, though, we are really selling into the business unit leader and or decision maker. Ultimately, it is their context that really matters. They're the ones who are trying to deliver that experience to the customer. And the others are a part of that of that buying cycle or buying team and helping make the right decision for that institution on an enterprise level. You know, I joked at the beginning about how we're going to take a break from the B2B software world to talk FICO. And, uh, and, and we're right back at it. 
Right. Well, no, and it's funny because as we were prepping for the episode, I mean, if for our listeners, if you go to FICO.com, I mean, it feels like a tech company, right? It feels like a tech website. It feels like platform solutions, products, industries like this is it, it feels exactly like it would feel if you were buying any other tech product. And yet it's also a recognized brand that That's everybody right. knows. That's and right. and so I'm just curious, like, how do you, as you're trying to build awareness and, and understanding within those kind of target accounts who already, you probably have a hundred percent brand awareness for the, for the brand, but not necessarily for the software solution. That's a great observation and really astute. Most of the financial institutions that we work with from a North America context actually do know the FICO score, use the FICO score in their credit decisioning process, are familiar with it and have used it for a long period of time. What they don't know and where we have to build a context for them, awareness and consideration, is really that we bring so much more to the table that we can enable their entire customer journey and life cycle in a risk-aware and regulated environment. And that's really our challenge. Our challenge is how do we help them understand that in addition to just the FICO score, what else can we do for them to help them achieve their, their mission and their business objectives? So what's your marketing strategy? Where does, where does demand fit within that? Our marketing strategy very much is tied to similar things that we've talked about today. We are very clear about our value proposition, what we bring to the table. We really have a, a robust analytic platform that enables companies, in this case, financial services companies, to be able to build intelligent applications on top of that to deliver a connected customer journey. And from a marketing perspective, my job is really to be an accelerator, a catalyst for our sales organizations so that when they walk into those financial institutions, that they're not walking into a cold environment, that that context has already been built for them. That buyer or persona in one of those institutions is aware of FICO, not just as the FICO score, but as this full service provider and somebody that can really enable them to bring to market their next generation customer experience that is informed by and driven by smarter, faster, more profitable decisions based on the information and data that they might have internally and or that they can augment from other sources to deliver the best experience possible. That's really what our mission is at the end of the day. And as CMO, how do you organize your team? Some parts of our organization are fairly standard from how everybody else looks at this. We've got corporate communications, we've got field marketing organizations, we've got product marketing organization, et cetera. The thing that that I think we do, as well as some of the best out there, is really how we connect these up. And what I mean by that is at the end of the day, for our personas at our prospects and or our customers, we really are very thoughtful about the journey that we want to take that buyer through. How do we want to take them through the funnel? And then how do the different components of my marketing organization come together in order to really bring that journey to life? Now, that journey is brought to life by our field marketing teams in the different regions. And so they become the quarterback of that process. And they're bringing to bear the best content assets and the best thought leadership assets from the product marketing team, or as we call it internally, our portfolio marketing team, our analyst relations team, bringing a legitimacy from analyst reports and analyst participation, our advocacy teams that are bringing customer stories, customer references to the table, bringing our corporate communications team, who's able to provide air cover from press coverage and other means. 
and really bringing all of the components together in order to take that buyer on a very deterministic path through creating awareness, consideration, evaluating our solution, and then through the, the buying process. And we're engaged all the way through. While we do have handoffs between the marketing organization and our sales organization, it's not a cold process. It's really warm. And we ensure that we stay engaged as part of our sales account teams all the way through the customer's buying process. All right, let's get to our next segment, the playbook. This is what's great about sports. This is what the greatest thing about sports is. You play to win the game. Hello? You play to win the game. This is where you open up that playbook and talk about the tactics that help you win. Nikhil, can you give us three channels or tactics that are your most uncuttable budget items? That's a great question. For us at the end of the day, it's really about putting our customers in the center of our journey. And anything that allows us to interact with our customer, to be front and center with them, to help them get better at what they do is incredibly important. And I think we were talking about this before we started the the podcast in, even in the context of your own work here at Caspian, it really comes down to, at the end of the day, the value that you're creating for the person that you're interacting with. You have to earn that right to be able to interact with them. And the way you earn the right to interact with them is by providing them with value. So in the context of being front and center with your customer and adding value to that customer, that's really the the lens that I use in answering your question. So our website is our number one way of actually telling our story of interacting with our customers and providing value to our customers. So that's incredibly important and not something that we would cut. Number two, we engage with our customers both now, of course, pre-COVID to a large extent, but both virtually as well as in person. And in particular, in some in the in-person events, we do it in two particular ways. One, where we bring a small group of our customers together on very discrete topics, looking at, at solving a, a very discrete problem. And we bring them together so that they can network with each other, they can learn from each other, but also so that we can bring our subject matter experts to the table. We do business in over 85 countries around the world. We do business with 90 of the 100 top financial institutions across the world. We pick up a tremendous amount of best practices through that effort and exercise. And we believe that it is part of us being embedded in the industry. It is our responsibility to share some of those best practices and to add value to to our customers. And so we use those in-person events and those virtual events to to be able to provide that back. And then the last one is very similar. It's the thought leadership materials that we create in product marketing that, again, take a lot of that, that material that we have learned, the best practices that we have picked up and memorialize them and then share back with our customers. Those are three things that I would not change no matter what. Yeah, and it's so interesting to hear you talk about those three things in tandem there, which is trying to figure out ways to provide the best information to your customers, to provide the best insights, to reach them where they are, whether it's doing the small events or or doing those things. Do you think that, obviously, highly regulated industry, do you think that, that your customers are... And, and, the, and the folks that you're selling to are really in need of that type of, of help because it seems like the type of things that you're doing is mm-hmm. so targeted, like you mentioned, and, and trying to get people into those certain type of things to really help them that, that because it's a difficult industry to be in, that having that information is, is perhaps even more helpful. It is. It, it really is. And I think the other reason why, Ian, it's really interesting is 
We do business in North America, in LATAM, EMEA, Asia, and different countries or regions are on different parts of the majority curve. And they also have their own local context that they're dealing with. And providing a banking service in Brazil, for example, is very different from the UK and is very different from Malaysia. But there are learnings that you can take from one to the other. And if we can help shortcut to that learning, if we can help provide some guidance on a best practice, it can really help solve a problem that that customer might have in that particular region and not have to go through a trial and error process. And so we do, in fact, we do a lot of that. We do a lot of that through our written materials, through our the videos we create, through various webinars that we might end up running and or through putting together a customer case study, a white paper, or bringing them together into small networks working group so that they can actually share some of those stories with each other as well. While they might compete with each other in a particular market and might not want to share in a particular market, when you cross markets like that, if you're going from Brazil to Malaysia, for example, they might not necessarily uh, you know, feel that they have a competitive threat there and might be more open to actually sharing some of that. And when we do share some of those best practices, we're not necessarily calling out who it is and how they're doing it to the nth degree so that we do maintain the sanctity and the, of the privilege that we have in, in learning some of what we end up learning in our, in our various engagements with our customers and aren't uh, giving away something that might be a secret or something that helps them to compete and win in their specific marketplace. So we're sensitive to that. Yeah, I know. I was just going to, that was going to be my next question is, that is in a heavy regulated industry in a very com- competitive industry, it is so tough to get people to really share those things. When you're talking about whatever, if you got a bunch of tech CMOs in the room, like they're going to all spill the beans because they're like, <laughs> the, yes. anything and everything can be copied and will be copied in tech. Whereas in a different industry, it, it's it's just kind of a different different thing. And so I'm curious, how do you go about crafting those stories? Because you have a number of stories on the website, both in your events and webinars and your customer stories and things like that, Mm -hmm. that really showcase some of the stuff that you've done. There's nothing like having a customer story. It provides incredible legitimacy and it provides a, a practical answer versus theory. And to the extent that you can get a named customer story, it's obviously significantly better. But even an unnamed story is incredibly valuable. And I think it's underappreciated what an unnamed story can actually do or provide in an engagement or in a, in a demand gen tactic as part of a broader campaign or program. And so as you're looking at our site there, you'll see that while we have a large number of name stories, we also have a large number of anonymous stories where we're still laying out the problem set that exists and, and how it was solved and importantly, what the outcome was of that solution. That actually maybe pivots me to another point. A lot of our storytelling is really based on outcomes, and it's based on what is the value that that customer is going to get by putting one of our solutions in place, whether that is with the FICO score and the risk associated with something, or it is with our transaction fraud monitoring solution that's letting an institution know when there might be a fraudulent charge coming in on somebody's credit card. All the way through, the theme really is about staying focused on telling the story about what is the outcome or the value that our solutions are going to bring to our customers. And we try to keep that front and center in, in our messaging and, and in, in what we put out there. I love that you brought up about unnamed stories because that is really, I mean, that could be a, a DGV bottle episode in and of itself. The art of the unnamed story, because you're so right. We, as marketers, we love logos. We yes. love having 
that stuff. We know that it works better, obviously. And we feel like a little bit cheapened at times when we're like, ah, well, you know, like they, they didn't want to share and it bums us out. But there's so many good nuggets in those stories and potentially a better story, which is kind of the mm-hmm. weird thing, right? I think we we lose sight of that sometimes where it's like, well, the, the person who is anonymized is going to be able to share a lot more details. Yes. And if you can reuse that in some creative ways, I think that, that it can be even more powerful, but but it's it's hard to figure out how to do that. That's very true. It is hard. And, and it's getting harder, Ian, as we all get busier. The amount of mindshare that you're going to get from a prospect or a customer is just shrinking. And so you have to be able to tell these stories just in time with the right medium and not taking up too much of that person's either time or ability to digest something. And so taking a story and starting to break it up into either multiple components or segments, putting it into multiple mediums, whether it's video or audio or through social or long form, and helping these things actually build on each other is really important. And that's stuff that we're experimenting with right now. Take a story, start to break it up into its components and start giving it to a customer so that they can self-select how much of of that story they want to really dive into and at what pace, frankly, do they want to dive into uh, versus us trying to take the whole thing and provide it to them in, in one go and expect them to be able to spend the time and effort at our convenience on how they're going to digest it. You mentioned the website how do you think about making investments and, and allocating uh, and allocating money towards your website, towards things that that can drive revenue? And obviously, like content being a huge part of the thing that a lot of that stuff lives on the website, but is not strictly a, a website <laughs> uh, investment per se. When it comes to investments, whether it's the website or it's anything else, it really comes down to return. And we've got our own sort of analytical models that we look at to help us identify return on investment. Almost every single thing we do, whether it's investment dollars into people or it's investment dollars into program funds, it is all driven towards us being successful as an organization from a a revenue and a profitability perspective. It all comes down to that. And we've got instrumentation in place that allows us now to look at almost every single tactic that we invest in I look at the website as one of those things and how that is part and parcel of driving eventually to our sales teams, driving revenue and gross margin. And so when we are looking at the website, we are actively looking at how is the website doing from a upper funnel perspective, middle funnel perspective, lower funnel perspective, and then from us helping re-engage that customer to cross-sell and upsell and manage them from a lifecycle perspective. So when we are looking at adding something new to the website from a capability perspective or from a feature function perspective, we're testing it for the same thing. How much investment is going to go into this? What do I think is going to be the outcome of that? How is that going to help increase either what's coming into the funnel and or how we're converting through the funnel? And we stack them up and make our decisions that way. From the, the website in itself, we tend to see really, really good results. And part of that is because we have fantastic instrumentation on it and we can really use that instrumentation to optimize and drive it. Do you have a favorite campaign that you've run in the past year or so? I do. I love creativity. I love it when we break the mold and we do something that's radically different. And this might not be necessarily a campaign that might be more of a tactic than anything else. And it really is a byproduct of probably one of the things that I that is very near and dear to my heart and what I believe in more so than just about anything else. And that is to have great people. 
almost everything we do starts with great people. How do you get the absolute best people in the world excited to come and work with you, partner with you, and share as enthusiastically the mission that you believe that you're on? And I've been incredibly fortunate through my career to have worked with a tremendous amount of people that are absolutely fantastic at what they do and bring that passion and commitment to work every day. And so this one tactic that I absolutely loved was when COVID hit and we went into lockdown, we were all trying to figure out how do we stay engaged with our customers through this period? And especially for us, where it's long sales lead times, it's a high value sale, requires a large number of people and our customers to come together and make a collective decision. You know, how do you do that in a virtual environment where you're not able to walk the hallways or get them into a, an environment where you have their undivided mindshare? And my team really started to think about creative ways in which we would stay engaged with our customers. And one particular one is where for a particular group of customers that are more on the smaller end of the financial institutions that we spoke about earlier, he came up with a very interesting way of bringing those customers together in a virtual environment for virtual networking events and using care baskets, for lack of a better word, to help facilitate and guide a lot of that conversation and bringing the mom and pop owners of some of those components that went into the care basket to actually come and talk about how did they start their businesses? What was important to them? Why was that product what they picked as their life's mission? How are they dealing with COVID? What does it mean to be a small business? And a lot of those folks were actually customers or the type of customers that these financial institutions were really interested in. So it was a very interesting way of having this informal session being pulled together using something that matches a customer segment that they actually sell into and really bring things back to core principles, first principles. And he did a lot of this by himself. In fact, him and his wife actually put a lot of these care packages together themselves in their garage with little handwritten notes with stories of each item that went in. What was the origin story of it? Who was the maker of that? Why did we pick it or why did he pick it? And they were all handwritten that went out to, to these customers. I love just creative things like that, that have heart and soul to it, that leads with emotion. And it's really back driven at, at first principles, you know? It was absolutely fantastic. And I feel very privileged and lucky to have folks like that. And I'm giving you one example. I could give you a dozen more like that over the last 18 months, Ian, where folks really went above and beyond and used their creativity to maintain and drive meaningful engagement with our customers. I love that. That's wonderful. Any any tips for creating those curated events and, and those small things that, that you've been doing that have been working so well? Yeah, lots of tips. I think number one is allow people on your teams to express themselves. In this case, this particular person on our team, we gave him the latitude to do that, to pull that together and to try it out, to test it. So it really starts with trust your people and give them an opportunity to express themselves and to be the best of who they are and to try it. If they fail, they'll learn and we'll move on, but give them the opportunity to try that. Two, don't try to boil the ocean. 
don't try to go from zero to Amazon scale overnight. You don't need to do that. You can build your way to it. Don't solve the problem at, at scale right off the bat. Three, know your audience, know who you're targeting. And then when you're building something like that, pull it together based on your audience and what's going to resonate with, with your audience. And last, be authentic to yourself as well. Don't pick something that is not true to who you are just because you're trying to express it to your audience. And, and when those things happen, magic happens. What about a, a campaign that maybe didn't work the best or a, uh, your biggest learning experience over the past couple of years? So when COVID started, we were getting ready to do a number of large in-person events. And we decided that we were going to move those to a virtual environment. And we went out and, and bought a platform to help us do that. And we came up with a series of these virtual events. And the first two of those, we had great participation and engagement. And it petered off as time went on and People got tired of being on video and looking at their screens and working in their pajamas from, from their homes. And, and, you know, I think we could have reacted much faster in potentially not even doing the last one of those that we ended up doing. It took a lot of time and effort on our part to actually pull together. And I'm really not sure that we were adding that much more value to, to our audience. And we should have pivoted and thought of a different way of driving the same thing. And we did. Eventually, we came to that conclusion and, and said, that one has run its course. It's done. People have moved on. Let's go try the next creative way of engaging those customers. I got to ask, you've been in the seat for a number of years now. Yes. You were a serial entrepreneur before that. After doing this a number of years, do you take that entrepreneur's approach and every couple of years question why you're doing things, how you're doing things, what's working? Like not a ton of CMOs that we talk to have been in the seat for as long as you have. It's usually a little bit more of a higher turn position for a variety of yes. reasons. Yes, it is, Ian. So let me answer that question on a number of different layers. FICO has been going through its own journey and we have changed and are changing ourselves pretty dramatically. We were a scores company, and then we had a number of discrete applications that were risk-aware parts of the customer lifecycle for financial services companies. We have pivoted pretty radically from that. Now we have a platform as a service that we bring to market, and we build our applications or our customers build those applications to serve their purpose and to solve a discrete portion of and or their entire customer journey using our platform to create those intelligent applications. That's a pretty fundamental shift. And the way in which you talk about the business, the way in which you represent the business, the way in which you bring that to market is fundamentally different. So I wouldn't even say that the FICO of today is that similar to the FICO when I first came on board. And so I remember the first sort of brand refresh process that we went through and the first messaging refresh process that we went through and the one we're going through right now are, are completely different. And so I'm really excited because I feel like FICO is more relevant today than it's ever been. We've got capabilities and solutions that we can bring to market powered by the FICO platform that is the best in the world. And it's a new company in many ways that I get tasked with storytelling for and helping bring to market. And so for my own sort of entrepreneurial roots, that fits really well and excites me. And hopefully you can, we can see each other, but I know this is going to be a podcast. Hopefully folks can, can tell that just by the inflection of my, of my voice. In addition to that, I will say, Ian, 
as I said earlier, everything starts and ends with great people. And it would really not be fair of me and hypocritical, frankly, if I'm thinking about the best people without putting myself into that context. And so I constantly on a regular basis ask myself, hey, am I the best possible person in this role for FICO, enabling FICO to achieve its, its mission and its objectives at the end of the day? And if I cannot unequivocally answer, or at least with some degree of confidence, that I have value to add then I really shouldn't be doing this. And until now, at least, I feel like I have value to add and I'm not done as yet. Okay, let's get to our next segment, the dust up. Uh-oh, here comes trouble. You may have heard that there was a dust up involving yours truly. And now we've got a wild scrum with fights breaking out all over the place. And it is getting really ugly. As we've got punches and kicks. Dust up is where we talk about healthy tension, whether that's with your board, your sales team, your competitors, or anyone else. Nikhil, have you had a memorable dust-up in your career? Oh, gosh. A lot of them, Ian. Creative tension is is never necessarily a bad thing. You know, sales and marketing are two that are constantly, you know, there's some friction there. And and that friction is not necessarily all bad. I, I think it's a good thing to have a little bit of, of friction between sales and marketing. At the end of the day, you have to be aligned. And I think one of the things that we do really well at at FICO is that we make sure that we go to market together, that we are two sides of the same coin, that the marketing role is really one about amplifying and accelerating. Our job is to make sure that when our sales teams go out there, that we have created tailwind for them. And then we can increase the wind velocity to help them drive those opportunities through the funnel faster. And then we can help them drive more cross-sells and upsells through that. As long as we have clarity on that, we are able to express that to our sales partners. And we have then clarity of who we're going after, why we're going after them, what are we trying to solve over there? What are we trying to sell? And a joint sales and marketing plan on how we're going to accomplish that we tend to come out significantly better than when we don't have those things in place. And that's really the challenge. The challenge is how do you do that in the most effective way? And you won't always agree, right? And that's where that tension comes in. So the art is how do you get to common purpose, common plan, and then common execution framework and do that in a productive way? And that's an ongoing challenge. Let's get to our final segment, quick hits. These are quick questions and quick answers, just like conversational marketing with qualified. Qualified prospects are on your website right now, and you can talk to them quickly. If you go to qualified.com, you can get a demo just right there on the site. Go do it. Go check it out. Go to qualified.com to learn more. They're our best friends in the whole world. Go check them out quick and easy, just like these questions. Nikhil, are you ready? Absolutely, Ian. Number one. What is a hidden talent or skill that's not on your resume? I have become a fairly decent cook uh, coming through COVID. (laughs) (laughs) If you weren't in marketing or business at all, what do you think you'd be doing? Uh, Teaching. What subject? Ooh, that's tough. Math. All right. What grade? I love elementary school. I actually sit on the board of the elementary school that my kids went to. I think it's just a phenomenal age group and so important as part of the development cycle of kids. 
really sets them up for life. What non-marketing hobby maybe sort of indirectly makes you a better marketer? Well, my happy place is on a golf course. And I think it not only makes me a better marketer, it also makes me a better person. <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, right. And so if I have a little bit of time off and I can clear the cobwebs out of my head, I'm, I'm heading to a golf course. Do you have a favorite book or podcast or TV show that you've been checking out recently? Uh, we talked a little bit about the All In podcast earlier. Not that I've been listening to it very regularly, but I have. There's an Indian journalist who puts out a podcast called Cut the Clutter. Mm. I listen to that almost religiously. I grew up in India and obviously India is very close to my heart and it's a great way of sort of keeping up with things. So those are two that I probably have been engaging in more than others of late. What is your best advice for a first-time CMO trying to figure out their demand gen strategy? Hire the best people you possibly can. I love it. Nikhil, this has been awesome. Thanks so much for joining. For our listeners, go check out FICO.com to see about a bunch of the stuff that we were talking about today. And then also tell your peers if you're uh, if you're in one of the biggest banks. Hey, you might already be a customer and you don't even know it. So go check out FICO.com. Nikhil, any, any final thoughts? Anything to plug? No, Ian, thank you so much for having me. This was a pleasure. Really enjoyed this uh, conversation and I look forward to connecting again soon. Awesome. Thanks so much. Take care. Cheers. Demand Gen Visionaries is brought to you by our friends at Qualified.com, a conversational marketing company that's on a mission to transform the way B2B companies sell. Go to Qualified.com to learn more.